The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the Russian defences in Kherson as the Russian army digs trenches far back from the front lines. All of this while more than 10 million Ukrainians were without electricity last night after Russia again pounded the country's energy infrastructure. And we hear how Russian state television has evolved to take into account Ukraine's success on the battlefield. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 18th of November, day 268. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, our Russia correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva, and former British Army colonel and expert on chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear weapons, Hamish Gibraltar Gordon. I started by asking Dom for updates from Ukraine over the last 24 hours. Well, hi, David, and hi, everybody. Another busy day in Ukraine, a lot of airstrikes. The Ukraine general staff said there were five airstrikes and 25 cruise missile attacks split over, broadly over, the centre and the east of the uh, country around Dnipro, Odessa, Kharkiv, Zaporizhia and Mykolaiv oblasts. The Ukrainian Air Force said that their air defence Systems has destroyed four cruise missiles and five of the Iranian-supplied drones, the Shahid-136 drones, and two KH-59, um, t- which are television-guided missiles. So it's another, yet more attacks on the infrastructure, as we've seen, and as has been reported widely by the Ukrainian authorities. We, I mean, we know this is the tactic. This is all that Russia's got left in the locker, really, right now, just trying to hammer the infrastructure to... Um, terrorise basically the um, well no basically about it terrorise the the Ukrainian population into pressuring their political leaders to try and seek some form of negotiations Um, in concert with this uh, and you'll see from the title of today's uh, Twitter space according to today's British defence intelligence estimate or or report on Twitter Russia is digging lines of trenches which which we know they've done across the, the piece but they have been putting a lot of effort into this. But these lines, these fortifications are well behind the the line of contact at the moment in many areas, certainly in the south and in the Donbass. I mean, some 40 k's at places behind the line of contact. And I I think this is their effort to try and establish facts on the ground ahead of any kind of, well, I mean, I, I forget ahead of negotiations, but just trying to establish something on the ground in the hope that they're that their indiscriminate use of air power would then um, somehow change Ukrainian thinking, change their society and, and, their, and as I say, pressure on the politicians. I don't think that's going to work, but um, it'll be interesting to see how these, how these fortifications work because, um, I mean, you know, who... This, so this, this does chime with what we said the other day. I had a brief, you may remember a couple of days ago, I had a brief from a, a Western official and that individual was saying that they they think about half the Russian troops that came across the river from Herzon, across the Dnipro River, about half those Russian troops are being diverted up into the Donbass. Um, two things on that. Firstly, we're expecting there to be some very limited 
Russian gains because of the increased weight of numbers, although that's not been seen over the last few days. There's been, it's been very, very active, very violent in that area. Um, but we don't think there's been any, any real trading of ground. Um, Ukraine is still keeping that pressure on the uh, Savatove area, that the route down into, um, into the Donbass. Um, but no real gains from, from Russia. Um, and of course, the other thing about that is if they're taking people away from the Hezon front, then as I said at the time, they must be really, really confident that the fortifications they've put in place down there can do the job. Unlikely, extremely unlikely that Ukraine would attempt some kind of opposed river crossing, but they could try and push round in the uh, in the in the east around the kind of Zaporizhia way and come down the bank of the river that way. Um, there's also the uh, possibility of, of coming over um, or through the over the river um, and onto that uh, onto the spit of land. Name name escapes me for now. And trying to work their way, Ukraine trying to work their way down from the from the west. But I don't know if that is very viable. As I said at the time, I think it's more likely that there'd be some maybe some air defence or some SF drone operators oper- you know, working from there to try and entice Russia in or, or force Russia to have to leave some systems behind to account for that. But unlikely to be a major breakthrough from the West, but you never know. You know Ukraine surprised us before. But these are, this idea that these fortifications are going in place, um, compared to some of the images we saw of them, I'd be, I'd be surprised if they were if they were particularly good. And, of course, when we talk about these these trenches, I mean, who's digging them? Who's going to be living in them? Who uh, is Russia expected to fight from them? I mean, largely mobilised troops. And, and there's a lot of reporting and a lot of imagery, imagery across social media and Russian telegram channels in particular. Very, very disgruntled, mobilised Russian servicemen who are just not giving, not being given equipment, not being given training. In many cases, um, told they're going to one place and then suddenly finding that they're off to Ukraine. So they they may well be in these in these trenches but to hold some form of coherent defensive line i mean that is something else entirely so yeah fine they're digging these trenches they're putting in fortifications but how good they are and how much they've put up with any kind of sustained ukrainian assault combined arms assault combined arms being all the different parts of the military orchestra working together the the tanks and the infantry and the engineers and the air defense the electronic warfare and all the rest of it all working together very unlikely i think um, as we've seen before in the Kharkiv breakthrough and indeed the pressure that was applied, uh, applied down in, in Hezon. Um, just one other thing. I'll take a little pause in a moment. I've got a other couple of bits of news, but just one other thing I need to correct. Yesterday, I mentioned the, the latest tranche of, of military aid from Sweden. And I, and I said that it was um, 720 crowns, 720 million, sorry, crowns, Swedish krona. Um, that I think I got that wrong, and thank you for correcting me, people that uh, that message me. I think that's just a humanitarian slice. Uh, a much larger uh, package of aid came in three billion Swedish krona, three billion crowns. That's about two hundred eighty-seven million dollars, two hundred forty million pounds, and that is the military stuff that I spoke about yesterday: the air, air defence, ammunition, and, and winter gear. Now this is bigger uh, than all eight previous military support packages combined, according to. Prime Minister Ulf Christensen, who's been in power in Sweden since October. So, you know, a, a sizable chunk, uh, which is good. It goes alongside many other many other European nations and the US, of course, and, uh, and others from around the world, Australia, New Zealand, etc., etc. Um, and a big old big old chunk of change there for, um, from Sweden. So thank you for correcting me, and I hope I've, got, uh, hope I've got that right. And I will take a little pause there. Thanks, Tom. Just a couple of questions from me, if that's all right, before we move on. Um, 
One's from a listener, one's just from me. I mean, you talked about these these defences, these fortifications, uh, 60 kilometres behind the front line. Um, in, in your view, do you, do you think this potentially could be evidence of Russian military learning? I mean, they, they looked at the Kharkiv, the incredibly successful Kharkiv counteroffensive and said, well, we can't let that happen again. Here's one, here's one thing we might be able to do to stop that. But I mean, and, and if, that, if that's true... To what extent might it make a difference? As, as I mean, as you said, there are we don't know who's digging them. We don't know how well equipped they'll be. We don't know what the motivation is. I just wondered if you could talk about that just a little bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't think it's any great evidence of of Russian learning. They've this military that's turned up, and I paraphrase because I think there were about five militaries that turned up. There was the army in the north, army in the east, army in the south. Um, that the Russian navy and then the Russian air force all seemingly doing its own thing. And it's only, I mean, if you if you give them the credit of saying they're now working together, which is mm, very debatable. That's only been in the last few weeks, really. But, I mean, the military, Russian military that's turned up has shown itself systemically and culturally to be an organisation incapable of learning. So it, it has not... I don't think it's putting into into effect here anything that it's, um, that it's reacted to over the last few months. I mean, it's not military rocket science to... Uh, to build, to dig trenches and build walls. I mean, Hadrian might have a might have a thing or two to say about that. I mean, it's as old as the hills, um, literally as old as the hills that you you dig out to make to make walls. Um, it all depends on how they put this defence together. A few few days ago, we were talking about the defences down in um, in Herzon, and I introduced you to our friend Mad Rod, which was the British um, the British military sort of acronym for for a good defence, which is mutual support, um, uh, all round defence, depth reserves offensive spirit and deception and that together if you get all that right that is a good defense just having a line of trenches um on its own is not going to cut the mustard any defensive area needs to be covered by observation there's no point in putting in obstacles i you know minefields or trenches or or some other way um of of channeling the enemy there's no point of in putting that stuff in if you're not watching it and there's no point in putting that in and watching it if you haven't got something to do to, to, to react to it if the if the enemy do come and stumble into it so you've got to cover it by fire you've got to cover it by surveillance all of which takes resources all of them need to be knitted together into some sort of plan they need to be able to talk to each other they need to understand what's going on there has to be a mobile reserve that if uh, the enemy does break through somewhere you can you can quickly flag up that there's a, a problem down in you know, down in the south or what have you and, and get the reserve around that way to plug the gap so i mean just a line of trenches a line of fortifications a minefield something like that in and of itself um, is no good. Now, I'm not saying that that is all that Russia are putting in um, with digging this, uh, digging these emplacements, as, as has been reported. But they've shown us no evidence in the last few months that they are capable of of really knitting together a, a, a proper defence as they would need if they want to hold ground. Now, if they're just trying to, if this is some temporary thing, that's uh, that's a different case in point. But if you look at what happened up in Kharkiv um, some a uh, couple of months ago, that breakthrough there. It was found that, I mean, I mean, that was the great Jenga game, as we spoke about at the time. Ukraine were probing in the, you know, all, all across the front, looking for the weak area, and then when they found a way through, they just, they just, they just pushed. They reinforced that success, concentrated their force, and pushed through the gap, and just kept on going. So that was found to be a very brittle defence. It was just one line of of defenders with empty countryside behind it, and Ukraine piled through there, and then raced for about seventy k's, didn't they? And it was only. It was only geography that limited them when they came up against the river, and also they didn't want to be overextended and then uh, perhaps vulnerable themselves. But they, they were, it was utterly in their gift to keep going or stop, and that is the 
risk of having a very brittle defence, just one one line that you think might be really strong, and it, maybe it is, but if you punch through it and there's nothing behind it, well, you know, you're on hiding into nothing. So as good as this line is, if it's not backed up with, with all the rest of the sort of lattice work of defensive capabilities and thinking that goes behind it, it's um, it's not going to be worth much at all. And Russia have showed us that they are they are not capable of, of learning from past mistakes and changing um, the, the good old fashioned doctrine that they've always always stuck to. So no, I, I you know, I'll watch this with interest, but I'm not expecting great things out of this. Thanks, Tom. Just one more question um, from a listener, actually, um, which I think flips the focus as we should onto the Ukrainian uh, military on on that side. So this is a question from Ward, who's listening uh, in the US. Uh, He says, now that Russians have retreated across the river, I think he's talking about Kherson, are their positions within range of HIMARS or any other Ukrainian arms? Secondly, what are the chances of Ukraine developing their own precision-guided missiles artillery that can reach deeper into the Russian lines? Uh, Dom, just very quickly, what are your thoughts on that? And then we'll go to Hamish, to Bratton Gordon. Uh, well, yes, Ward, thanks for the question. I think you're absolutely right. Yes, yes, this does now put a huge swathe of Russian um, area, Russian-held area, in, into HIMARS range, another indirect fire range from, from Ukraine. And I think we've already seen, I can't remember the name of the airfield, because it was Ch- 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 I can't remember, I can't remember, just, just north of the Crimean Peninsula itself, but it was a it was being used as a uh, Russian helicopter base, and they and they got out of there as soon as um, they withdrew from Hezon. They also pulled out of that of that base, knowing that it was just going to be inviting indirect fire from from Ukraine. So so yes, just the the ability to threaten these areas um, is going to force Russia to re- to react. As I said the other day, there's basically two two reasons, two things that you have a military for. Number one is to kill people and blow stuff up, and the second thing is to threaten to kill people and blow stuff up. And it's that threat that Russia are having to respond to now that um, that Ukrainian forces can push right up against the uh, the edge of the Dnipro River. As for Ukraine developing their own missiles, well, we think they are. I mean, we know they have they have had programs running in the past. When the Moskva, the the Russian flagship of the Black Sea Fleet, was sunk many months ago we're all scratching our heads saying well we didn't think they that ukraine had anything that was a kind of anti-ship missile that could get for that range or that uh, uh was sea skimming and able to get through any russian defenses so we were still still not entirely sure what that was we think it was neptune missiles but we don't really know um so they they have shown their ability to modify stuff um they also to a lesser degree russia are doing this more but but it is possible to to use missiles, use munitions in their in their auxiliary mode. So, for example, um, you might have a um, uh, an anti a, a surface-to-surface missile, which you can repurpose to go against ships. Now, they don't work exactly correctly because the radar section you get moving across ground is different to when you're moving across water, and so on and so forth. So, they're generally not as accurate if they're used in their in their secondary modes, but you know, still go bang at the end of it. And so what they might see is that Ukraine are, are um, not misemploying, but, but using certain munitions uh, either in different modes or with some innovation that they've, that they've put in over the last few months, um, some additional capability in there that, that, that in effect creates a new weapon. Uh, not entirely sure on that one because they've been very, very cagey about any of, their, any of their developments. They just like to sort of show results, i.e. what happened to the Kirsch Bridge, what hit the Moskva, um, what's been landing on uh, on the Saki airfield in, in Crimea, etc., etc. So, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Ukraine have, have developed new um, new weapons throughout this uh, throughout this war in that great sort of innovate 
you know find 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 the find the problem or the, the problem finds you you manage to defend yourself and then you think your way through it and you and you innovate and you get through the problem um, and develop something new on the on the way through so i wouldn't be surprised at all if that's what they that's what they're doing but thanks for the question ward Thank you very much for that, Dom. Hamish, thank you so much for your time today. Um, yesterday, you gave a rather special lecture with BBC journalist John Simpson. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what uh, you and him were talking about and what were, your main, uh, what were your main takeaways? Yes, absolutely. Good afternoon, everybody. And uh, thank, thanks for the opportunity to discuss this. And uh, John sends his uh, apologies that he can't be live on the pod as well. Uh, what we gave, something called the Garrard Lecture, at the University of Cambridge last night at the archaeological department. Um, I might come back to that uh, with some very eminent um, academics uh, in attendance. It's their sort of premier series. Uh, What we were talking about, or the title was Unconventional Violence on on the Modern Battlefield and the Materiel of Modern Warfare. And We've spoken, I've written in the past in The Telegraph about what I call unconventional warfare and the fact that civilians are the target rather than the military. And we've seen General Armageddon Savaikin taking control over the last month or so of forces in Ukraine and attacking directly civilians, attacking hospitals, attacking schools, attacking food, and of course also the infrastructure. Uh, and I see a, a piece in the Telegraph today that um, 10 million people are without power in Ukraine and we've got the first snows. Uh, again, as we've discussed before, I'm really concerned that that actually the one area that hasn't been directly attacked is the nuclear power stations. And they probably providing 30 percent of the power um, at the moment. And that is an area that w- we must um, look at closely, and certainly I'm working with a number of organisations to try and make sure that those are as safe as possible. But one, one of the key things that, that we discussed last night is is the sort of so what's from all of this, um, and evidence is absolutely key. And with what happened with the Polish missile incident earlier on the week, really underlines that. And I'll, I'll just come back to it. But the evidence piece first really struck me with my. Uh, work in Syria over the last 10 years, when we didn't get, and NATO didn't get involved to help out the civilians directly. And the only thing I could offer them was if we collected evidence of atrocities, uh, we could present it at some stage to the International Criminal Court. And as a Bosnian and Kosovo veteran, I could tell them that a lot of those generals who committed atrocities in the Bosnian and Kosovo wars uh, were now in The Hague or had died. So not unsurprising with archaeology, evidence is, is absolutely key. Because I think, you know, we're just a miscalculation, a misunderstanding or a misjudgment away from a potential disaster. And the Polish missile incident early on the week really personifies that. I'm sure a lot of people like me on um, that night when the news broke earlier in the week, you know, we were thinking, are, are we on the edge of something that would involve NATO getting directly involved in this conflict? In other words, was it a pre- precision guided Russian missile strike into Poland? It would now appear that was not the case and perhaps a malfunctioning S-300. I, I absolutely agree with our prime minister, Rishi Shunak, that, you know, whatever happened, it is still the Russians at fault. You know, they fired 80 precision missiles 
on, on Monday and Tuesday. And the collateral damage from that is entirely at the response uh, of uh, responsibility of the Russians. Uh, so protecting civilians is something we discussed in detail how we did how we do it. I, I, your, your, your listeners and you're already aware, I think, of, of the apps that I've designed with others on Telegram to show civilians how to be protect themselves against a nuclear accident or other accidents. Uh, and actually, that we're turning that into a into a video, an animation, which will be available on all social media soon. Um, we then went on very interesting to discuss the state of the Russian army, which, again, the pod has discussed in detail. And I think interesting looking at command and control in the Russian army. You know, it would appear nobody is prepared to make a decision. Um, and it gets to a very, very high level until decisions are made. And by the time that decision filters back to the troops on the front, you know, it's invariably too late. The Russians do not understand mission command. And we see that actually with Putin, who appears to be reaching right down to the lower tactical level, making decisions. And after all, you know, this is this is a man who's trained as a spy, not a military commander. And I think some of the decisions that he's forcing on his troops down below is is tantamount to his background. We know that the Russians don't have any NCOs, non-commissioned officers, corporals and sergeants, which are the heart of the British Army and, and the American Army that really make things work. Uh, we also learn that, that you know, the Russian officers command from behind. Um, and you put those two things together, or three things, with their lack of making decisions, and we see why perhaps they are performing so badly. Um, also interesting enough, and a source that I can't really um, uh, uh, allocate uh, that we discussed last night, it would appear that the, it's actually the British who've been teaching the Ukrainian army mission command, if you like, and also converting from a Soviet army into a more of a what we'd understand to be a NATO-type army with NCOs, sergeants and corporals, with the ability to make decisions that actually a decision made now that might be wrong is better than no decision at all. And I understand that sort of started in sort of 2014 and is one of the reasons, you know, quite apart from the, the, the real brilliance of the soldiers, Ukrainian soldiers on the ground, that things are going forward. Um, John talked about his interview with President Zelensky, which many of you, I'm sure, have seen on, on the BBC. And, um, you know, what an impressive orator and communicator that Zelensky is. But I think also important is, unlike Putin and perhaps some other leaders in the past, he doesn't appear to be making operational, tactical, military decisions. He's leaving that to the experts around him to really develop and execute the military plan. And that is, I think, very significant uh, and, and very important going forward. There's a very eminent uh, academic in the audience who was talking about violence and actually how perhaps violence has reduced over the, over the millennia. Um, which is very difficult to, to really understand. I sort of understand that, you know, Neanderthal man, when they fought each other, there were 50% casualties because somebody died and somebody survived. But I think some of the casualty rates that we are seeing in Ukraine at the moment amongst civilians and, 
you know, in, in the military, particularly on the Russian side, are more akin to perhaps, you know, Second and First World War. And that brings me just to my final point um, on the UK Defence and Security Review, which um, was last done in 2020. I think it was Liz Truss when she was Prime Minister ordered a, a review of the review. And I just hope that that is um, enacted you know, w w with some urgency, because um, it's very important that I think we look at what's happening in Ukraine. We look at the state of our own military and just make sure that we are sort of learning the right lessons and configuring our military for the next conflict, not the last, not the status quo ante. So in the round, and I I'll, I'll I'll perhaps write more of the detail of our lecture um, that might be of interest to um, uh, to some of the listeners. And it is still available on the University of Cambridge Archaeology uh, Department website. Thank you very much, Hamish. Just a couple of uh, questions for me, and I'd be interested to hear Dom's thoughts on this as well. Also, I'm just aware that Natalia Vasilyeva will be joining us uh, very shortly, so let's keep these answers a little brief. But I was struck by what you were saying, uh, Hamish, about the dysfunctional command and control in the Russian army. And I wanted to ask, um, we've heard a lot about the, the new overall commander, Surovikin, as you referred to him, you know, General Armageddon. But from what you said, it sounds as if he, he really hasn't been able to, to, to change that much, um, which will be, be of some comfort, I think, to, 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 to our Ukrainian listeners. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Well, I think you, you can't change the basic structure and the basic modus operandi of, of your troops, certainly down to the lowest level. They can't introduce corporals and sergeants overnight. They can't introduce mission command to get people to make decisions on the ground. That That is something that takes takes years and years to do. Um, I think Savarkin, you know, his his fingerprints are all over Ukraine with, you know, the attacks that we're seeing on, on civilians and, and the infrastructure um, in particular. Um, but, I, you know, th this idea that if you kill enough civilians, then they will capitulate. Actually, I think what we saw in Syria and what we're seeing in Ukraine, that has absolutely the opposite effect. So I think I think his his battle plan of this directly attacking civilians, sadly, will will, will keep going. But I don't I don't think you're not going to improve the Russian army overnight. Um, I don't know what Dom thinks. Thanks, Hamish. Just very quickly, Dom, I just want to come to you for my second question here. Um, Hamish talks about. Uh, how the UK has had a, a large impact on training the Ukrainian army. And Hamish talked a little bit about what that might mean in terms of mission control. Could could you give us, from your experience, just a, a brief uh, condensed sense of the major lessons that they'll be learning? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a number of nations that are contributing to this training. I think about 12 or 13 at the moment. A lot of Jeff nations, the Joint Expeditionary Force, Northern European Beer Drinking Club, um, you've also got Australians in there, New Zealanders. Um, and the deal is that they are being trained up to basically what, what the British Army would, would do in their phase one training. Phase one, taking taking the civilian off the street and getting them up to what we'd call pairs firing movement. So being able to work literally in a pair with one other person, one of you firing, the other one moving, then going firm and, and sort of moving that way. Now, of course... It's a lot harder than I you know, make it sound. It's very glibly there because you've got to you've got a, a lot of um, soldering skills in there. But it's the that's the absolute fundamental building block upon which um, a small team is built. So we have sections of, of eight 
personnel, eight people in the British military, a corporal commanding seven people, usually a, a, a corporal, a lance corporal, and then six private soldiers. That's your that's a um, that's your sort of very small um, section. Three sections and a little headquarters element make up a platoon. Three platoons, and again, another headquarters element make up a company. This is an in- infantry language. And roughly three companies, three rifle companies, plus maybe a support company of heavy weapons, mortars, etc. And another uh, headquarters element make up a make up a battalion, which we also, in the British Army, sometimes confusingly call a regiment, just because we like to keep everyone on their toes um, with all the different terminology, not least of which ourselves. Uh, so we are, this is very, very basic, low-level training we are giving um, th- these people from Ukraine, but what it does do all the way through, it inculcates um, the uh, the sort of discipline and ethos and, and uh, self reliance, uh, but also the te- teamwork and comradeship that that you really rely on as a soldier when the chips are down. So even though even though it might seem to the individuals and and possibly listening to this that actually what's being imparted is a very basic level of training, there's a lot of those. Um, unwritten lessons that that will be dripped in there about camaraderie and 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 looking to your left and right and fighting for the people around you more more than yourself, um, and all those things that that are going to become so crucial, especially when you when you are numerically at a disadvantage, but especially when you go into the cold months that um that, that they're they're going to go back to uh, all these uh, all these people. I mean, it'll be fascinating to see how they how they hold up, um, and. Some of the ideas that we've heard there about mission command, um, and it's mission command, David, not mission control. Very different thing, command and control. We can dive into that one day if you like. But this mission command, this idea of trusting people, trusting people lower than you to to do what they know is right, know what the bigger mission is. And if events where they are are different to how you see it in your big headquarters somewhere else, then you you allow them to go and use their initiative and, and to move on their own and take decisions on their own. So that, all these ideas as well will be... Um, will be imparted into the Ukrainian troops that are being trained in in the UK and elsewhere. A very very different mindset to the to the Russian model, and um, not so much for the for the Ukrainians that are training now because they're generally young young people. But a lot of the senior command in the Ukrainian military w- would have grown up uh, uh, in the Soviet system, so they have shown themselves over the last nine months. And I had this idea put to me by um, a. Uh, the head of a Western intelligence agency, I'm not saying which one or which country or anything, fairly cagey as you can tell, but the the the, the head of um, of said agency told me that what Ukraine has managed to do at a senior level um, is very very quickly in the last nine months change the mindset from an old Soviet model of thinking and training and and literally using equipment into a much more Western one. Now that that mode of thinking will be inculcated or imparted into these new into these new recruits from from day one so um it'll be interesting to see how systemically ukraine move after the war and how they how they develop themselves as a military thank you very much dom and thank you hamish for that i'm going to move to natalia vasilyeva natalia thank you so much for joining us uh, you've been writing a couple of very interesting stories. Can you talk to us firstly about uh, your piece on Igor Gherkin? This is to do with the uh, the MH17 um, uh, court uh, decision yesterday. Can you talk to us about what you found? Hi, good afternoon. Um, obviously, yesterday was a big deal uh, for the families of the victims of the um, uh, MH17 plane crash um, in 2014. Um, as some of you may know, um, that was one of the uh, biggest and the most tragic plane crashes in, in recent years. 
Um, and it happened over eastern Ukraine in 2014 when a missile shot down a plane with 298 people on board. And Russia and the West have been tra trading um, accusations over what happened. From the evidence that we've seen on the ground, you know, including myself when I was reporting there in 2014, it was pretty clear that this area was under separatist control. The separatists were uh, basically trained and run by uh, the Russian army. And all the evidence pointed to the fact that there was a missile, um, um, a um, Russian army missile, which transported from Russia into eastern Ukraine. And yesterday was this landmark ruling which saw two Russians and one Ukrainian found guilty of murder and causing uh, the aircraft to crash. Um, and th there were four people on trial, uh, three Russians, one Ukrainian. Um, one of them was actually acquitted uh, due to the lack of evidence of his involvement in the case. All of them have held um, various senior positions in uh, the separatist administration in Donetsk, which is still the epicenter of fighting uh, in, the, in the current war. Um, and um, I think it's, it's important to look back um, uh, to what happened because the roots of the conflict that we're all covering right now, um, the, the current Russian invasion, um, it all goes back to 2014 um, when the separatist conflict in Ukraine started. And it often all goes back to Igor Gikin or Igor Strelkov, as he himself calls it, who was one of the defendants yesterday at the MH17 trial. And he was among those people who were found guilty of murder and he was sentenced to life in absentia because he refused to take part in the proceedings. And he is someone who at the time was the so-called commander of the separatist forces. And he, um, um, quite astonishingly, around the same time, he was talking to reporters a lot and he Uh, gave a comment to a Russian news agency and later uh, wrote a post on his social media saying that the separatist forces shot up, shot down a um, Ukrainian uh, military plane. And that, that story with his comments came out around the same time as MH17 um, came down. Um, and Igor Gil Gilkin, all of those years, has been denying that um, they have something to do with the plane crash. But also he's been very um, cautious in his wording. He never said that um, the Russian army didn't do it. He would always say the separatists have nothing to do it. And we know that the separatists never had um, such sophisticated weapons as the book missile launches. So that left him a bit of a space to say that, you know, the separatist forces he commanded um, did not shoot down the plane. Um, and also he gave an interview a couple of years ago where he said that he um, claims, quote, moral responsibility for what happened because he was um, part to that military conflict. Um, but the point is that verdict that uh, um, came through yesterday, uh, obviously it serves a, a belated justice to the families of the victims, but none of the people on trial, uh, uh, none of them looks like they're going to be in jail or they're actually going to be serving their sentences anytime soon because they're all in Russia. And the Russian foreign ministry came out with a statement last night, uh, a very scathing statement, uh, insisting that Russia has nothing to do with it. And this is all part of a Western plot um, to um, blame um, Russia for uh, what it never did. 
Thanks, Natalia. Thanks for giving us the, the um, a comprehensive lowdown on, on what took place yesterday. Can I just ask you to talk a little bit more? You, you mentioned you're working on a story about Russian uh, television. Um, would you like to talk to us about that? And then I'm afraid, just because we're slightly short on time today, we'll have to start thinking about wrapping up. But firstly... Natalia Vasilieva, what have you been working on in regards to Russian TV? Sure. Uh, this is a piece that will hopefully come out this weekend. Um, and I just wanted to look into uh, into Russian state TV, into Russian propaganda, which is something that has been credited for uh, propping up the war. Um, not in the sense of propping up Vladimir Putin as such, but propping up the um, a horrible genocidal war that Russia is waging against its neighbors, and it was quite interesting to look back at the um, uh, at all of the recent years and and see how um, Russian television has been manipulating people and how um, it has uh, planted seeds of xenophobia, anti-Ukrainian statements, um, painting Ukrainians as neo-Nazis. And this is something that, you know, we journalists used to dismiss for years, saying that, you know, you have to be really stupid to um, watch Russian TV or believe what they say. And uh, at the end of the day, when, when the invasion, when Putin launched the invasion, um, a silent majority in Russia said, well, there's probably something going on because they've been exposed to that message from state tv so in in my story i'm i've uh, i was quite fortunate to um uh have been able to talk to a couple of uh recent state tv employees some of whom left uh shortly after crimean annexation there's one man who left uh within the days of the invasion in february and they all spoke about this well-oiled machine um, that Russian state TV is and how often the orders of what to say, how to say it, or maybe what not to say, um, they, they do not come in emails and messages and a lot of those orders are implicit. So people on the news desk, for example, they would know, uh, they would know what, to, what the message is. And a lot of them um, would be very liberal, uh, would be happening, but a lot of them are treated as a job, and they think that it's their job to toe the government line, even if privately they they might might rebel against it. And um, uh, the people I spoke to, they all say that they know th- that there are still lots of um, uh, people who are uh, occupying quite senior positions in state TV, who are opposition minded, who um, hate the war, but somehow they are still staying and they're still feeding into this, you know, poor, horrible machine that's, um, that's distorting the reality for, for millions of Russians at the end of the day. Well, thank Natalia. That sounds fascinating. I just got one question for, for you. I mean, in, in your following of Russian state TV over the past, since the launch of the full scale invasion, have you seen, how have, have you seen it change much? Have you, how, how have you seen, the uh, propaganda operation adapt to uh, Russia's increasingly uh, poor fortune in the war and the, the the Ukrainian army, of course, being on the ascendant? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think if you start from the start, I remember when um, the invasion began, uh, maybe for the first five or seven days, um, um, news channels, um, or not even news channels, like you would get news broadcasts pretty much 24-7, and they're all working in this breaking news regime, I guess with the idea that Russia would have a you know lightning, lightning swift 
invasion and it would be over in a matter of days. Uh, but then as Russian troops uh, got bogged down, you see that you could see that um, Russian news coverage, uh, yes, obviously, like they would top uh, the news agenda with news from Ukraine, but it would not be, you would not be that heavily bombarded with what's going on. And they would have lots of, you know, uh, nice fluffy stories about uh, puppies, tourism, and, and, and things like that. Because obviously, the authorities by now have realized that the war, even if it's not unpopular, that people don't want to talk about it all the time, or people are getting really... really I mean, the, one of the biggest highlights for me so far is um, what happened to Herson, how quickly Russian troops first pulled out of Herson, and uh, how... Um, there was absolutely zero coverage of what it actually means and what about all those people who were evacuated or forcibly taking, taken to the eastern side of the uh, eastern um, side of the Dnipro? Like what happened to them? We, st- we still don't know. It's like suddenly um, the city of Kherson, you know, no longer <laughs> exists in the Russian news agenda, which is uh, quite fascinating. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much for that, Natalia. Uh, we're starting to, unfortunately, be a bit pressed for time. So can I go to Dom for your final news updates and then to Hamish and Natalia for your, for your final thoughts? Yeah, sure. So very quickly, because time's running out, uh, three things to note. Uh, Nord Stream, the Nord Stream pipe that, uh, that went up in September, Swedish prosecutors saying they, found, they have found explosive traces on a number of foreign objects that were found at the scene. They've not um, said where from, but they, they are saying that was gross sabotage. Um, separately, first train from Kiev to Hezon is uh, leaving tonight, 22.14, leaves Kiev tonight, gets in 0900, Hezon tomorrow. It's going to be called the Train to Victory and it's being, uh, pictures on, online, have a look at, um, have a look from the uh, Ministry of Defence and the Ukrainian Foreign Ministry sites, lovely pictures there, all covered in, in graffiti from, from Ukrainian artists, look very spectacular. And the final thought is, um, next week, uh, there's the meeting of the CSGO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, what Russia would like to think is their equivalent to NATO. So Russia, Armenia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan meeting next week in Armenia. It'll be really, really interesting to see what the mood music is out of there because Putin would love to have more friends and would love to say that they're all behind this this uh, this special military war in uh, in Ukraine. Uh, and I, you know, they are simply not going to do that. Kazakhstan in particular has come out and been very, very vocal about their opposition to the war. So let's see how many friends Putin's got uh, backing up this time next week. Thanks, Tom. Hamish to Bretton Gordon. Yes, just two things. Um, looking at the attacks on infrastructure, it's going to be very interesting to see where it goes in the next few weeks as the Russians run low on precision guided missiles and have to rely on dumb weapons. And secondly, the Polish uh, missile incident, you know, how do we make sure that an incident like that doesn't happen again? You know, I've suggested that uh, NATO should think about about some sort of no-fly zone, maybe 20 minutes, 20 miles astride the border to make sure that we don't have uh, any difficult situations that we had uh, earlier this week. Thank you, Hamish. Thank you, Dom. Uh, Natalia Vasileva, would you like the very final words? Sure. Uh, maybe I should just say a couple of things about uh, Ukraine uh, itself and, and Kiev, uh, which saw a um, uh, which saw massive missile strikes this week. Two days, uh, two missile 
two days of intensive missile strikes in the space of three days, which has um, so far caused the worst damage since the start of the war, as we've heard from um, local authorities. So this is something I would watch for because obviously there is only there's so much you can do with whatever Western support you have in, in weapons, we have seen how far the Ukrainian army has advanced. We have seen um, how quickly Kherson was recaptured. But if um, uh, Ukrainian energy infrastructure is getting pounded quite as much as it has been this, this week, obviously it puts, it puts Kyiv in a very tough spot because we have a cold winter ahead and um, this is Ukraine where winters are quite cold. And what do you do with the population if you cannot provide central heating or, or water? That's, um, that's a big question. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast by The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, do leave a review as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload, so if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred app. Check out the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Claire Hubble.